everyone, and happy Sunday. Welcome to Fair Voice. Fair Voice is Fair Mormon's podcast, and I am your host, Hannah Syriac. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Today, we're kicking off our series on the Bible. Our series on the Bible will look like this. Today's episode, I'm going to provide some background for what we'll be talking about. I will provide some terms for you to know. I'll try to make it fun, too. We're going to have some insights from the Bible that I have learned over time. We're going to talk a bit about the transmission process of the Bible, how it got from oral tradition to what you hold in your hand should be a very fascinating time. Going forward on this series, we will have interviews with biblical scholars to talk a bit about some ideas in the Bible and how these ideas correlate to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Should be a really great time. I actually study biblical things. That's what I do. I'm getting my master's degree currently, but I I study biblical things. I study extra canonical Christian texts as well. This is really my jam, and I'm so excited to be talking about it with you today and to be talking about it going forward. I love Greek and Hebrew. I think they're so fun. But before before we get started today, we're going to kick it off with our first question of that has been submitted, and then we'll end with a second question that has been submitted. Thank you so much for submitting questions, by the way. We have so many that it's taking us a bit to get through them, so don't be dismayed if I said I'll answer your question on the show. I still will. It'll happen. We've queued them up, so it should be a really great time. So remember to submit any questions that you have for me to hsyriac at fairmormon.org, and that's spelled H-S-E-A-R-I-A-C at fairmormon.org. Your questions can be anything about apologetics, about doctrine, about church history, about some some of you have asked preference questions for me, which is one thing that we're doing today, which is very fascinating. My gospel preference questions. You can ask whatever you want and it'll probably be answered on the show. So thank you for your questions. I really appreciate it. We're doing two today. We did two last episode. We've just been getting so many that we just have to do two questions. I think it's necessary. So our first question for today is asked, and this was asked before General Conference, which makes it fascinating. But the question was, after you watched General Conference, could you please talk about what your favorite talk is and what themes stood out to you most personally. So my favorite talk, we'll begin there. I talked about General Conference last week on the show, but I will say my opinions always shift on General Conference. I'm sure you understand this. As you study talks, your opinions shift on which one becomes your favorite. Different talks stand out to you at different times. So right now we're going to talk about what's speaking to me at this current moment in time, not necessarily the talk that I liked the most at General Conference, because they are different at this point in time. I've just been thinking about different things. Things in my life have changed a little bit, so I've been thinking about different things. The talk I would like to speak about today is by Elder Suarez, and it is Seek Christ in Every Thought. This was one of my favorite talks because of this quote, and this quote I think really frames it. Despite our continuous efforts to seek out the Lord, inappropriate thoughts may penetrate our mind. When such thoughts are permitted and even invited to stay, they can shape the desires of our heart and lead us to what we will become in this life, and eventually we will inherit for eternity. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once emphasized this principle by saying, Desires determine the gradations and outcomes, including why many are called but few are chosen. And then even further down, 
what he says is, when Moroni called upon the people to believe in Christ and to repent, he urged them to come unto the Savior with all their hearts, stripping themselves from all uncleanliness. Furthermore, Moroni invited them to ask God with unbreakable determination that they would not fall into temptation. Applying these principles in our lives requires more than a mere belief. It requires adjusting our minds and our hearts to these divine principles. And that line really reminds me of the talk, but if not, where he says that faith is more than mental assent. Faith is, I think it's complete trust in Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not 100% sure. I don't have it open. That, That just came to me. The reason I like this talk is because there are so there's so often times where thoughts come into my mind that are not necessarily bad, right? He, he specifically talks about temptations that we have that are immoral, um, which is something that we do need to overcome. But for me, a lot of the temptations that I have are things that are not necessarily bad, but they're things that are not necessarily best. For example, I often wish that instead of doing homework or instead of reading a particular book um, for school or for work, that I could do something with my time that is a bit more lax. I wish I could take a break. I wish I could watch some I don't know, some YouTube or something like that. Though I will say what I watch on YouTube is philosophy and religion and history. So that's where we're at. Um, I I do wish that I can sometimes do things like that. And that's very tempting to me. And I'm not saying that these don't have a place um, because we, we do need to obviously take some breaks at some points in time. However, for me, those things can become temptations where I feel like they're not necessarily bad things, right? But they're not necessarily the things that are best for me to do to best glorify Jesus Christ, to best become who I want to become. They're not my, they're not an example of my total faith. They're an example of my mortal nature. So I liked this talk a lot because what he emphasizes is that as we seek Jesus Christ in every thought that we can become more changed through his atonement and that we can be better people. I liked this this quote too. I know that by following Jesus's example, we will avoid many tragedies and undesirable behaviors that may cause family problems and disagreements, negative emotions and inclinations, perpetrating injustices and abuses, enslavement by evil addictions, and anything else that would be against the Lord's commandments. I like this because of the phrase negative emotions and inclinations. I do feel like most of the time when we think about temptations, we categorize them too strictly, but we don't see how a lot of the time we can cause ourselves to feel some level of Uh, I don't want to say depression, but feeling down because of our actions. I know for me that on a day where I'm less productive, on a day where I I just watch TV all day or something like that, um, I don't feel as good about myself and I don't feel as good about what I can do. I feel very restricted by my negative emotions. I feel like what Elder Suarez is saying is that by seeking Christ in every thought, instead of seeking Christ in most thoughts or some thoughts, we're able to better make decisions and we're able to become more changed through Christ's atonement. So I I really like that talk right now. That one's really resonating with me as I try to become more Christ-like and as I try to spend more of my time productively and 
feel better about the way that I use my time. That's something that's really been on my mind. And the second part of that question was what theme stood out to me. So I talked about this last week, but I will say right now, as I've studied conference again, a different theme has come out to me. And that theme is very simple, but very important is that God individually loves all of his children. That's been the number one theme that I've I've seen. And a lot of the talks, um, such as Let God Prevail by President Nelson, We Talk of Christ by Elder Anderson, A New Normal by President Nelson, Waiting on the Lord by Elder Holland, Hearts Knit in Righteousness and Unity by Elder Cook. Um, and then there was Bread by Waddell, um, Bishop Waddell. That was a really great talk. Be of Good Cheer by um, President Oaks, and this was in the women's session. And then notably, notably, by Union of Feeling, we obtained power with God by Sister Eubank. I found that a lot of these talks focused on the idea that just because we have hard things happen to us doesn't mean that we are not loved by God. It doesn't mean that God has less love for us. God's love for us is so individual and so important to focus in on. And I do feel like the number one theme for me for uh, for conference is that Heavenly Father loves all of his children and he wants us to express that love to other people. And that's really the purpose of why we become more righteous, right? We become more righteous, not for ourselves, but so that we can become better people to better love our God and better love those around us. So those are the themes that are standing out to me right now. Those are my thoughts on that question. Thanks for submitting that question. The the last question, please stick around for it. It'll be at the end of the episode. The last question, I'm going to tell you right now, I read it and I kind of chuckled and was very surprised that someone asked me this question, but I will answer it for you because I think it's very, very fun. So let's go on to the Bible. The Bible Save It Be the Book of Mormon is my favorite book. The Bible has a very rich and interesting history, and I think it's very important to talk about some terms with the Bible. So first off, the word Bible comes from ta biblia, which means the books. Um, Biblion is the singular form of it, and it just means a book. Um, it means any old book. But we we call our Bible, uh, we, we call our Bible the Bible. So we call our book the book. And this is really a Christian innovation. So originally, the works of scripture had individual names. You had the Torah, you had the prophets, right? You had these different names for the Hebrew Bible specifically. Um, they were also often called the scriptures. That's the best the best term for one of the uses. And in Hebrew, we see that one of the earliest names for specifically the Hebrew Bible is HaKodesh, which means holy. And then later on, Christians called it Ta Biblia Ta Hagia, which means the book, the holy, or the holy Bible. And it was also later called He Hagia Graphe, which means the holy scripture or the holy writing and and the word the words for scripture the word for scripture really means something that is scratched into that's what the proto-indo-european root of this is however the bible did not come to us in a a nice book-like form we have mostly fragments of the bible up until the earliest complete or as we call it extant biblical manuscript came to us in fourth century and this is this copy is 
preserved in the Vatican Library, and we know it, know it as Codex Vaticanus. And then we have the earliest copy of the Tanakh, and the Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible. Um, we have the earliest copy of the Tanakh later on, um, the earliest full, full extant copy. But I will add, we have some very early, especially for Gospel of John, especially for Gospel of Luke, especially for um, the epistles we have for the New Testament. We have very early fragments of the Bible, but the first full copy wasn't until the fourth century AD or CE, however you want to call it. Um, this is very interesting for us, and something we need to talk about is how exactly was the Bible written, right? So, the languages of the Bible are different. So, within the New Testament and the Old Testament, you have different languages, and uh, let's define some terms. New Testament refers to, obviously, the Gospels, the Epistles, and the writings of the Apostles after Jesus Christ has come, or simultaneously with Jesus Christ. The earliest dates for these being written down or transmitted are 1st century, and the earliest time period that we think someone wrote something down is the 50s with Paul. The actual Gospels are probably written later. Um, The Gospel of Mark seems to be, that's at least the theory that I hold to. I will add Um, This is my opinion uh, about the dating of the Gospels. This is my well-formed opinion, but yeah, it's just my opinion. So the the Gospel of Mark seems to come first. I, I, I believe in something called Mark and Priority, and the Gospel of John clearly comes last with Matthew and Luke in between. I tend to think that it goes Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. The dates that I typically ascribe to those are Mark 65, Matthew 75, Luke 80, John 90. These are pretty traditional dates. Um, There are other dates you can adhere to. Earliest dates for something being written down, though, 50s with Paul is what we have going on there. And the New Testament was originally written in Greek, whereas the Hebrew Bible is written obviously in Hebrew, but also in Aramaic. This is important to know. So there are multiple different languages that are used to pen the Bible. And the text itself did not come to us as a text. Within the New Testament, we have seen that there is something of an oral tradition, especially behind the Gospels. We don't know exactly what the oral tradition was, but we can pretty much see that there are some similarities, particularly with sayings of Jesus that correlate amongst the Gospels that lead us to believe that there was an oral tradition. And we just know because it was an oral culture that that makes sense. So these Gospels were something that would be read aloud, especially the Gospel of Mark. There's a great reading of the Gospel of Mark online. You can find it. I'll link it down below. There's a great reading of the Gospel of Mark that allows us to understand it a bit more. And we can see very clearly that Mark, in particular, has little signposts, as I like to call them, of words like suddenly or immediately. You'll see these in the, in the KJV straight away that he uses to construct an easy-to-remember narrative as these texts were often read aloud or recited. All of them were recited. We know that for a fact. Um, they had to be written in such a way that would allow the allow the reader to remember where to break, remember where to place emphasis on particular words. And using words like straight away to signpost where they should do that is very effective. So that's a bit about the New Testament, a bit about the Hebrew Bible. This is very fascinating. And we'll talk again about the New Testament. I'm going to keep going back and forth. Someone said that they like when I do that, as long as I'm very clear about what I'm doing. The Hebrew Bible has 
different divisions within it. So you have the Torah, which is the teachings, the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings. The Torah consists of the five books of Moses. You might know it as the Pentateuch. This, we believe, was entirely written by Moses himself or by disciples of Moses. Something to keep in mind when we're talking about these authors, sometimes we'll say that Moses wrote a book. And I believe that that can mean Moses actually sat down and wrote a book. However, at the same time, another way of looking at it is that Moses could have said a bunch of things and told one of his followers to write it down for him because he just didn't have time for it. That's that's a theory that I particularly like, um, though I do believe the origin of the teachings are, is definitely Moses. That's what I believe. But the Torah, so the Pentateuch, the Torah provides the basis for Jewish law, and we see that there are 613 commandments within the Torah. This is known as the law of Moses. This is where we get that phrase. And the Torah basically talks about how Moses lived his life. You also have Genesis in there too. And it really sets up what covenantal language is. Then you have the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im is known as the prophets. And there are two categories within the Nevi'im. So this is the Nevi'im Rishnoim. So that's basically the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And then you have Nevi'im Aharonim, which is the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you have what are called the 12 minor prophets. This really talks about the rise of the Hebrew monarchy, and it talks about how they reacted to people who believed in different gods. This section is very important for Latter-day Saints, especially as we consider what it means to be monotheistic. I actually like a term that Kwaku uses in one of his videos as he talks about what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. We are not exactly monotheistic in the sense that we do believe there are multiple gods. We do believe that they exist, but we're monolatrous. I love that term. I think it was very clever, very effective. I don't know if he was the originator of it, but that's where I learned it from. I like that term because I think it's more descriptive. And as we read the Nabi'im, of course, they're talking about foreign gods. But if you look into writings that are contemporary or commentaries to this, I think that that can be effective to discern what it means for them to believe in foreign, to believe that foreign gods exist. I think there's a lot of evidence to read this as a sort of multiple gods situation that they believed in. And that's just a side note that I think is very interesting and fun to think about. The third section of the Hebrew Bible is the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim is also called the writings. That is the Ketuvim. This is, these terms are so fun to learn. I feel like, I, I think when we understand what they actually are, we better understand what what the the Israelites were thinking about, about what they were concerned about. A lot of the Ketuvim writings are the poetic writings. Um, these books are things like Psalms, there are things like Proverbs, Job even. Then you also have what, there isn't really a term for this to my knowledge. The other books are, which are Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, in addition to things like Song of Songs, Book of Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Book of Esther. Um, Those so the Song of Songs, Book of Ruth, Book of Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Book of Esther are known as Hamesh Megliot, um, and these are 
considered a, a grouping, whereas the other books are considered a grouping, and I haven't been able to find a, a title for you for those, so just keep that in mind. These books tend to be more poetic. Um, however, all of these books made it into the canon. Um, everything else has not been accepted into the biblical canon. There's a lot of other books that we don't talk about, even with Hebrew books. Um, we don't talk about them, but we know that they're they exist. We know that they're very important for shaping Jewish religion, but we just don't discuss them. Um, this me, these books are called extra canonical. A lot of these contain information about history, um, but the reason that they're extra canonical, there's two, there's two different reasons typically. Either the writing of them is dubious, meaning that we don't know who the author was. We don't know, um, who the intended audience was, things like that. But typically it comes down to, we don't know who the author is. Therefore, it doesn't carry any prophetic authority. That matters a lot. Um, but at the same time, we have the second subject. We have the second category of books that are not canonical, which are books that have, a, a, let, let's say, weird doctrine. I think that's the best way to put it. Doctrine that doesn't seem to comport with the rest of the books. Um, a lot of this tends to be with Christian writing too, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we transition to talking about the sections of the New Testament. The sections of the New Testament are really fascinating too. These terms are really important. So you have what are called the synoptic gospels. These are the gospels that we believe have a common base. So there's this theory that someone wrote down um, some sayings of Jesus and called it Q. Um, they didn't actually call it Q. We call it Q. Q is the German word that means source. So the synoptic gospels share a similar structure. They share similar um language they share similar narratives in them and the synoptic gospels are matthew mark and luke then you also have the gospel of john these are called the gospels you have narrative literature which is basically acts of the apostles acts of the apostles is written by luke um the same luke that wrote the gospel of luke unironically luke was an amazing dude then you have the pauline epistles which consist of romans corinthians galatians ephesians philippians colossians thessalonians and that's very fun. You have the pastoral epistles, which consists of Timothy, Timothy, uh, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. And then you have the general epistles, which are James, Peter, Peter, John, 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 and then Jude. And then you have apocalyptic literature, which is known as Revelation. In terms of authorship, the authorship for the New Testament is a bit contested as well. Um, one theory that I particularly liked is from my friend Robert Boylan, who believes that Luke wrote the epistles to Hebrews. I like that theory. A lot of people will say that it was written by Paul. However, the evidence that we have seems to suggest that while there are some Paulian features in it, it very greatly differs from traditional Paulian writing. Um, for me, it personally does not matter who wrote what. I believe that they were all inspired, so that's what really matters. But you do see some contestations on who wrote what. Now, all of the Greek New Testament was written, obviously, in Greek. This language, though, was not the same Greek necessarily as Aristotle and Plato wrote. This was considered Koine Greek. This is the common language of those who were conquered by Alexander the Great, and this this Greek is not as pretty as Attic Greek, will, some will say, or others will say that it's prettier than Attic Greek. It depends on what you think, but it is a dialect of Greek. It is a later dialect of ancient Greek, and it's very fascinating to 
read. It's the way that the New Testament reads is for a layperson. That's really the importance of the New Testament in my mind as compared to um, something like Psalms. You can read this fairly easily with fairly minimal training because it just reads so smoothly and so quickly. And I think that accessibility is something that is often lost on us, but it, it really is there. The New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, has an oral tradition, but it also breaks into three textual traditions. So the three textual traditions are Alexandrian, Byzantine, and Western. And as we talk a little bit here about textual traditions, I'm not going to get super into it just because I don't think we have time for that. Um, When we talk about textual traditions, what we're saying is that while it's really nice to have a copy of your Bible in your hand, there's a lot of work that goes into that. There are multiple different manuscripts for every single piece of writing that we have. So you'll have one manuscript that will provide you with Luke 22 verses 43 to 44. You'll also have a manuscript that completely omits that. You'll have one manuscript that has the story of the woman caught in adultery placed in the Gospel of Luke. You'll have another manuscript that doesn't have that in there at all. And then you'll have that story in John. You have a lot of these different, what we call textual variants. And some of them hold what what is considered importance, right? So some of them have theological importance where if we read the text that it changes what the principle of the text is. Others of them are not (laughs) nearly as important as that and they more so just carry a different tone or even it's just a different way of wording it and it seems equivalent to the way that it's been worded in another tradition. However, all these textual variants lead us to have to do some detective work to create a Bible. So what happened with the Bible that you hold in your hand is it is a summation of multiple textual traditions. People who edit uh, who edit manuscripts will look at multiple textual traditions. They'll look at a bunch of different manuscripts. They'll determine which variants seem to be most plausible. And they do this through looking at the dates of variants. They do this through trying to understand the theological import, things like that. And then they'll compile these all together. They'll decide what the main text should be. They'll do that. And then they'll have to translate it too. So we see that there's multiple levels going on here, right? And then if we even think about oral tradition. So if you first begin with oral tradition, where people will recite stories to one another and eventually these get written down and then eventually these get compiled and then eventually these get compiled and copied and then eventually these copies end up in our hands and an editor looks at all the copies and compiles them further and then translates them. There are a lot of different steps that the Bible undergoes in order to come into our hands. This is very different than the Book of Mormon. Obviously, the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God through Joseph Smith, and we're not 100% sure on what that means. There's a lot of different ideas about what that means. However, we know that he used golden plates, and we also know that the the translation was given to us and we don't have the quote-unquote original language. However, with the Bible, we do have a type of the original language, but it's important to remember that we have a lot of variants that we have to work through on this. And that's that's a very exciting venture. That's known as textual criticism. There are other types of criticism that you do with the Bible. Um, and that's basically this idea where you try to determine what the original text says. Because 
while we know and have some confidence in what the original text says in a lot of different places, there are other places that we're not as sure. So we have some scholarly debate about this. But regardless of this, the canonical New Testament comes to us through a variety of different processes, along with the canonical Hebrew Bible. And I find these processes very fascinating. So I hope that this baby introduction to the actual structure of the text is really helpful for you. I hope you learn something about the structure of the text. I think it's really important to talk about what happened to the Bible as it went throughout time. And this this will help frame us for our further discussion because our further discussion is going to focus on how different authors write different things. What's, what are some theological imports from the Bible. But one other thing that I would like to talk about before we transition into the last question of the day is the concept of exegesis and this in conjunction with the importance of reading the Hebrew Bible. We've talked a bit about exegesis before. It's one of my favorite topics and there's there's a good reason why and we'll, we'll get there. Exegesis comes from a Greek word that means to lead out. Exegesis is trying to understand what the text says. You ask questions such as, what did the author mean by this? What's the historical context of this passage? What's the immediate literary context of this passage? What's this? What's the, what's the context of this passage within the book that it's in? What's the context of this passage within the section of the canon that this, this is in? What's the context of the pas- passage within the entire canon? Why did, why was it put in here And what is the original intent of the author, text, and audience? These types of questions become so important for exegesis. This is what we base exegesis on. This is a type of criticism. It differs from what is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is drawing into the text. That's this idea that you read the text and you put yourself in the text. You ask yourself what this means for you, not necessarily what the text itself means. We all do eisegesis pretty naturally, especially as Latter-day Saints, as we focus on exegesis, as we focus on trying to liken the scriptures to ourselves, like Nephi reminds us with the books of Isaiah. That's one of my favorite passages within the Book of Mormon is likening the scriptures unto ourselves. However, I would like to talk about how even within that passage, there's this idea that you should understand the word of God first. And we understand the word of God through this historical grammatical method that allows us to understand what the author meant. And this is important for a variety of different reasons, but the one that I'd like to focus on is the idea of prophetic authority. With prophetic authority, we have this concept that prophets and apostles are called of God and that they're inspired to write scripture. Within Timothy, we know that all scripture is God-breathed. That means that God literally wrote the scriptures in some senses as he worked through his children to make the words come to life, to bring meaning to the words. This, to me, makes exegesis all the more important because the intended meaning of a text then becomes what we should base our doctrine on, what we should base our understanding on, what we should base our lives on in a lot of ways as Christians. And I find that an increased focus on exegesis allows us to better liken the scriptures to ourselves because we know what the word of God is saying. You can't liken something to yourself if you don't understand it. And I think that that's why we have a rigorous focus on scripture study. One thing that really stood out to me in general conference and has stood out to me for a while is that many conferences, President Nelson will talk about 
how he does his scripture study. And I would like to read a section from what he described as him doing his scripture study this general conference. He says, for, and I'll provide commentary as we go throughout this, so I'll I'll read something short and then I'll provide commentary. For the more than 36 years I've been an apostle, the doctrine of the gathering of Israel has captured my attention. Everything about it has intrigued me, including the ministry and names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their lives and their wives, the covenant God made with them and extended through their lineage, the dispersion of the 12 tribes, and the numerous prophecies about the gathering of Israel. Pause. I like this because he delineates different topics that you can study. The names of Abraham, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have we ever thought about what the names mean? For me, when I learned that Adam meant man, that really transformed the way that I read Genesis because in a very literal way, we stand in for Adam and Eve and we know this through a lot of different ways. But even the name Adam allows us to do that and the name Eve allows us to do that. There are these there are these little things that we can pick up on and that can transform the way that we read the scriptures. I like that President Nelson delineates some topics for us, their lives and their wives, the covenant that God made with them. Do we understand what the covenant is? Do we understand how the covenant applies to us? And do we understand the law of Moses? These these questions are really important. I always like to say when, when Latter-day Saints ask, and this is a question I get asked all the time, how is the law of Moses fulfilled? And then I ask them, like, what's the law of Moses? And then often they'll say, like, the Ten Commandments and some other laws. Um, I find it really important to read all 613 laws to try to understand what it could mean for the law of Moses to be fulfilled. Because without knowing what the law of Moses really was, I can't really explain to you how it was fulfilled. That's what I like to say. I like that President Nelson delineates these topics. Let's, let's keep reading what he says. I have studied the gathering, prayed about it feasted upon every related scripture, and asked the Lord to increase my understanding. Pause. This is amazing because he talks about how you first have to study and then you have to have faith, right? So he studied the gathering, then he prayed about it. Then he looked up every related scripture and asked the Lord to help him understand. Instead of telling him, instead of him going to the Lord and being like, Lord, can you just make me get it? He, he asked for help with understanding and he put in effort to look at cross-references to try to make connections to other scriptures. And I really just love this because I find it so important to look into all the different resources that we have to try to understand what a scripture says. I've been particularly blessed when I've studied particular topics and just gone all over in the scriptures. One resource that you can use for this is the BYU Scripture Citation Index, and this will allow you to see references to modern prophets and apostles who speak about these scriptures and can tell us insights about them, regardless of that. So he he likes to look at related scriptures and ask the Lord for understanding. I think both of those things are so important. Then we keep reading. So imagine my delight when I was led recently to a new insight. With the help of two Hebrew scholars, I learned that one of the Hebraic meanings of the word Israel is let God prevail. Thus, the very name of Israel refers to a person who is willing to let God prevail in his or her life. That concept serves my soul. We need to pause here and talk for a second. What President Nelson did is philological analysis. So he was able to look at some scholarly sources, talk to some Hebrew scholars about what the name Israel can mean, be given a translation of it, and then see how this translation applies to what he said. 
I find this to be incredibly amazing for so many reasons. And I think that this shows us a really great example of how to do scripture study, which is to use more resources to be able to properly exegete the scriptures. If we know what the words actually mean in the scriptures, then we're able to make connections like President Nelson did that help us to understand the word of God, right? Because since he understood that Israel meant let God prevail, then we have this insight that he has. I'll read it. The word willing is crucial to this understanding of Israel. We all have our agency. We can choose to be of Israel or not. We can choose to let God prevail in our lives or not. We can choose to let God be the most powerful influence in our lives or not. For a moment, let us recall a crucial turning point in the life of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. At the place Jacob named Peniel, which means the face of God, Jacob wrestled with a serious challenge. His faith was, his agency was tested. Through this wrestle, Jacob proved what was most important to him. He demonstrated that he was willing to let God prevail in his life. In response, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, meaning let God prevail. The God then promised Israel that all the blessings that had been pronounced upon Abraham's head would also be his, end quote. And that's all we read from this talk today. I like this for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I like this is because we see that what President Nelson did is he takes an insight that he learned from scholarship and applies it to try to understand the scriptures well. And it leads him to this amazing insight about why God would change Jacob's name to Israel. And he's able to make this connection and share it with us. As we are able to exegete the scriptures, particularly the Bible, then we're able to make these connections to other books like the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price in a way that allows us to understand the scriptures better. Now, the question that I think has been on my mind the most in preparing for this podcast beyond the fact that I just love talking about the Bible. So I've just been thinking about the Bible is what's the point, right? Because we as a church emphasize the Book of Mormon so much. And that's a really great thing. And and that often comes from the promise that we're given uh, that if we read the Book of Mormon every day, that we will be able to overcome temptation. Um, President Benson is one of the people who really emphasized the Book of Mormon in a way that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints needed a ton. And I really appreciate the work that he did there. And I believe we do need to read the Book of Mormon every single day. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I feel like the reason I wanted to have a Bible series was in large part because of the Hebrew Bible, and we'll get to that in a second, but because I find that we as individuals could do better to understand the Bible more in a way that would be helpful to our fellow Christian brothers and sisters to help them understand why we believe that the Book of Mormon is true, to help them understand why we choose to follow Christ in the way that we do, but also to help our efforts with missionary work. I find that the Bible allows us to connect with a lot of Christians and a lot of people not of a not of a Christian faith, of a Jewish faith, or just someone who lives in a, in a culture where the Bible is prevalent, right? Because there are some stories from the Bible that we just all know. We all know the story about Adam and Eve in, in the Western Hemisphere, at least, because that is such an important story to Western culture. We see that the Bible is used in great literature. It's quoted oftentimes in great literature. The Bible is something that we have a lot of unity around as Christian brothers and sisters and as Jewish brothers and sisters. And I like to emphasize that unity with the people around me. So when I asked what is the point, for me the point of reading the Bible is to be able to better understand the covenant people 
of God, because we see that there is a transition from the Hebrew Bible to the Greek text. We see that there is a, a change in the way that God allows his gospel to be preached. This seems to be a policy change that reflects a greater doctrinal principle, and exploring that has been one of the best parts of my life. So, (laughs) the primary reason for this, though, I'm going to be really transparent here. Thank you for making it this far. I'll be really transparent. I think we need to read the Hebrew Bible more. I think that the Hebrew Bible provides some of the best framework for Latter-day Saint theology, particularly within Exodus. I'm going to read you something from Exodus to demonstrate this, and we'll close on that, and I'll exegete it for you. We'll have some fun with some exegesis. So let's let's turn to Exodus 40. This is one of my favorite chapters. In Exodus 40, we read, And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and anoint him, and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons, and clothe them with coats. And thou shalt anoint them, as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. This is one of my favorite sections from Exodus. I really like this for several reasons. One of the reasons is it's directly speak is the Lord directly speaking to Moses. But two, if we look into words for ministering, if we look into words for serving within Hebrew, we see that these words are connected to priestly words. We see that the translation of these words in the Septuagint, which fun fact, we'll have an episode on the Septuagint, so that should be fun. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. We see that these words are connected to priest words. What I mean by that is you you'll see that the word for minister is often translated into a Greek word that gives us the word deacon. So these these priest words for ministering have long since intrigued me. And I thought about the phrase shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generation. And the conclusion that I draw from these verses is obviously this is the washing and anointing ceremony. And we believe that the washing and anointing ceremony is still in place today. We believe that that's something that we should be doing to prepare ourselves. But this allows us to minister to people in a particular way. The way that I think it allows people, allows us to minister to people is to bring them to their next temple ordinance because the priest words are connected irrevocably to the temple and the temple ordinances are what bring us to salvation and exaltation. The way that I would exegete this passage is I look at the words for serving. I look at the words for ministering. I determine their origin. I determine what they meant in their context. I look in the other ways that they're used. And I see that the washing and anointing ceremony here is preparatory to being able to minister to people, which means encouraging people to do their te- their temple ordinances. How does this apply to me? That means when I am ministering to my to my sisters that I minister to, I can think about how to next get them to the temple. How can I get them to their next ordinance? For a lot of us, our next ordinance is going to be taking the sacrament, right? I've been endowed. I am not dating anyone. Therefore, I'm not going to get married um, in the conceivable future that I know of. Um, so my ordinance, the next ordinance I will participate in will be taking the sacrament later on Sunday. But for some of us, our next our next ordinance might be baptism. For someone that you see on the street, their next ordinance could be baptism, and that's the way that you minister to them. For someone else, their next ordinance could be the initiatories, and it could be the endowment ceremony. 
for someone, you know, the next ordinance could be the stealing ordinance. However, we see here that ministering to people has a close connection to the temple. And we see that ministering to people has a close connection to priesthood and to ensuring that people can have an everlasting priesthood throughout all other nations because we know that the blessings of the priesthood are not restricted to men only. We know that the blessings of the priesthood apply to women just as well. And I find that this exegesis of this passage has had greater import for me as I've read other talks. One of the talks that I have read that has allowed me to apply this passage is Just As He Did by Bishop Waddell. I first remember hearing this talk as I decided to write a piece on ministering and it was a really convenient time to to write this piece because we we read from what Bishop Waddell says in modeling our ministering after Jesus Christ it is it important to remember that his efforts to love lift serve and bless had higher goal than meeting the immediate need he also says but he wanted to do more than take care of today he wanted those around him to follow him, to know him, and to reach their divine potential. And then we continue to read. However, we must remember that it is never too late, and that no one has wandered so far from the path that he or she is beyond the reach of the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, which is limitless in its duration and scope. What Bishop Waddell also says is that being a minister is being more than a friend. I was able to make this connection between ministering and the priesthood and temple ordinances and correlate it to this talk. So the way that I now read this talk is when focusing on ministering, I like to focus on how I can be more than a friend when I minister and how that means helping someone reach their divine potential through priesthood ordinances, through temple covenants, through these incredibly important methods that help us to obtain and achieve exaltation through the atonement of Jesus Christ. I would not have understood this if I had not read it. So I would just like to close um, on at least this segment of of the Bible on the importance of reading the Hebrew Bible in particular because it is a temple text in a lot of areas. Genesis is a temple text. The The first couple of chapters of Genesis that talk about the, tr- the creation, that is a temple text. Reading Exodus has been very important for me. Leviticus, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, and not just reading the sections that appear in the Book of Mormon or the popular sections, reading it all. I think that as we read the Hebrew Bible, we will come to understand Jesus Christ better than before because we must remember that Jehovah in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, is Jesus Christ. And if we want to know Jesus Christ in full, I think we can't just read the New Testament and the Book of Mormon and expect that to be sufficient knowledge when we have been given other works of scripture by God. I find that reading the Hebrew Bible is really important, and we're going we're gonna to open up with a lot about Genesis. We're going to open up with a lot about Exodus, about temple ordinances, and it should be a very interesting conversation that we have next week about these ordinances. So I wanted to close on that and challenge you, because I can do challenges on this podcast, challenge you to read one chapter of Exodus this week. Pick a chapter. Um, I'll give you my favorite chapters just because I think that's that might be helpful for you. I know I know when someone is like, oh, read a chapter of something, I'm like, okay, which chapter should I read? I obviously I like Exodus 40. I also like Exodus 8. I like Exodus 21, 22, 27, 
and I like Exodus 35 and Exodus 38. Exodus 35 is also one of my favorite one of my favorite um, chapters because it talks about the Sabbath and it talks about how we have to make us our sacrifices as a willing as a willing offering unto the Lord. I like that, particularly with thinking about Cain and Abel too. Making these connections within the text is so important. So challenge you to read one chapter. Pick an Exodus chapter. It'll be very fun. So thank you for listening to this segment. And we're going to close on the last question of the day. The last question of the day was one that made me giggle a little bit. I, you know, I was reading through a lot of the questions and they were like, okay, can you define faith for me? Can you define what you think it means to be a good minister? Can you define your, like, epistemology, other things like that? And I was like, okay, these are fascinating questions. But the question that needed to be answered is one of the most favorite, one of the best questions I think could have been asked of me. The question is, Hannah, you say that you like ice cream a lot. What is your favorite ice cream and what brand is it? This is a very interesting question that warrants a story. So I actually really like this one brand of ice cream that is called Brigham's. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of Brigham Young because I live in Utah now. And also that would make sense because of course someone would have an ice cream called Brigham's ice cream. However, Brigham's ice cream is not a Utah ice cream. If it was, that would be fantastic. It's not. So Brigham Brigham's ice cream is founded in Massachusetts. It is my favorite ice cream by far you can't you can't get it out here in utah um it's really quite good though this ice cream is very very hard ice cream um i don't know how to describe it um it it kind of tastes like hood ice cream if you've also had hood ice cream but Brigham's ice cream is the best ice cream in the world i like their vanilla bean the most however i will say that I moved out to Utah, and I was very dismayed that there isn't Brigham's vanilla bean ice cream. Don't worry. I'll give you options. I'll give you a Utah option, and then I'll give you a nationwide option for my favorite ice cream brands, um, so that way you can you can eat ice cream like I eat ice cream. So anyways, I moved out to Utah, and I was very disappointed that there was not any Brigham's ice cream. So anyways, I go on. I've lived out here for four years and I called my dad the other day and I was talking to him about the podcast and I was like, oh yeah, someone asked me what my favorite flavor of ice cream was. I think I'm going to say Brigham. And my dad's not a member of the church. My dad sometimes listens to these podcasts, so he might be listening right now and this will be very funny for him. Um, My dad's not a member, but he's talked to me so much now that he knows a lot of things about Brigham Young. So he assumed as well that there was a type of ice cream named after Brigham Young out here. And he was like, wait, so did Brigham Young just like found an ice cream factory in addition to a school and in addition to Utah? I wish he did. If Brigham Young founded an ice cream, that's something I don't know about Brigham Young yet. So please call that to my attention if he did, but he, to my knowledge, did not. So the the, the answer is really Brigham's vanilla bean ice cream. If you're in an, a location where you can get Brigham's vanilla bean ice cream, i.e. you're in the Northeast, please get it. So my favorite ice cream in terms of Utah uh, brands you can get in Utah, um, I really like Tillamook. So I guess Northwest would, would account for that. I like Tillamook. My two favorite are Oregon strawberries. And then the second one you probably won't be able to get unless you're at a specialty store. It's or it's it's still Tillamook, but it's Marion Berry Cheesecake Custard. Quite good. And then my favorite, I guess, national brand is the best way to put it. I don't know. I don't understand. Is I love Ben and Jerry's strawberry cheesecake ice cream. 
those are my favorite ice creams i really appreciate the question when i'm trying to buy quality ice cream i like to look for different flavors i like to look for the process in which they make their ice cream i'm very picky about my ice cream so i really appreciate the question but back to the subject at hand our closing statement i would like to close with my thoughts on a particular verse we're going back to doing this little scriptural ending just because i i think it's very effective uh, a lot of you have told me that you've missed it so we're gonna we're gonna we've read a lot of scriptures today which is great but we're gonna turn to scriptures that have touched me this week that i have been able to articulate some thoughts about finally so i'm gonna open up to alma and I was touched by Alma 30. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm studying right now in the Book of Mormon. I'm actually studying how people respond to antichrists and how people respond to quote unquote critics of the church because that is something that I want to better learn how to do to follow my scriptural examples for how to do this. And one verse that stood out to me the most is Alma says, but Alma said unto him, Thou hast had signs enough. Will ye tempt your God? Will ye say, Show unto me a sign, when ye have the testimony of all these thy brethren, and all the holy prophets? The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote there is a God. Yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it. Yea, and its motions. Yea, and also the planets which move in the regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. And yet, do you go about leading away the hearts of this people, testifying unto them there is no God? And yet, will ye deny against all these witnesses? And then we read, And now it came to pass that Alma said unto him, Behold, I am grieved because of the hardness of your heart, yea, that ye will still resist the spirit of truth, that your soul might be destroyed. I like this particular set of verses for a very specific reason. I like the way that Alma frames this, and I think that this is really important. He emphasizes the importance of the witnesses. I don't think that that's something we do, we do enough. We talked a bit about Book of Mormon witnesses, but we need to think about how the word testimony means witness. We need to think about how the gospels were written to, to testify that Jesus is the Christ. They stand as a witness of his divinity. The scriptures, the prophets, these stand as witnesses of the divinity of Jesus Christ and of the reality of God. And if we see them in this way and we use these as evidences instead of just thinking of them as holy writings if we see them as evidences for god and we make arguments using scripture for god i think that that can be very effective and then the response of alma to hearing that korhor that's who this is talking about korhor is still going to deny based on except except alma show him a sign um Alma's response is being grieved. I think oftentimes we don't have enough charity to feel that. I think sometimes we can hear that people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and we can want to be more sad than we are, but I do feel like having a genuine sadness for people rejecting the gospel has been something that has blessed me because it has motivated me to be better. Because I have been able to take the feelings that I have when people reject the gospel and turn them into into my motivation for being more deliberate more prayerful more humble about preaching the gospel of jesus christ those are my thoughts on that and i think it's really important to 
look to the scriptures for our examples in all things. The scriptures provide us with a perfect roadmap for how to do all the work that the Lord would have us do. And I have been truly blessed by reading Alma 30. And I invite you to read Alma 30 as well. So I invited you to read two different things. That's amazing. Two different things. I'm so excited to hear what your thoughts are. I'm really excited to move forward on the Bible series. Um, again, remember to submit any questions that you have for me to H-S-E-A-R-I-A-C at fairworm.org. And thank you for listening to Fair Voice. This is Hannah Syriac signing off, wishing you an amazing Sabbath day.